Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Change on the Run podcast, where we discuss common change challenges and ways to address them when you're short of time. And I'm your host, Phil Buckley. Today's topic is competing for resources. Securing adequate resources to implement your plan is one of the most important negotiations impacting your success. Most companies take on change agendas that are larger than the resources available to implement them. This can lead to insufficient or misaligned resources supporting your change initiative. A large portfolio of change projects can also limit the capacity of those impacted by the change to implement your plan and transition to new ways of working. So, how do you compete for resources you need to support people as they adopt change and achieve the intended results? And my guest today is Dennis Kelly. Dennis, welcome to the show. Hi, Phil. Thank you very much. Delighted to be with you. And thank you very much for inviting me to join your podcast today. Thank you so much for being here, Dennis. And Dennis is a senior engineering and organization change management professional with over 30 years of experience leading a wide range of change initiatives. He is currently energy engineering capability specialist and researcher at TU Dublin. Dennis is a chartered engineer, chartered HR professional, holds an MSc computer systems design from Trinity College Dublin and a BSc engineering telecoms electronics from TU Dublin, Kevin Street. So Dennis, through all of your experience and all of the change initiatives that you've worked on or led, what's been your experience with competing for resources during change? Thanks, Phil. Yeah, competing for resources is always an issue on a change project. It's always there. For me, it always starts, what's the case for change? If you have a really compelling case for change, you get lots of resources. If you have a weak case for change, you get a smaller portion of resources. And the other thing to keep in mind is what is resources? It's not just people. It could be money. It could be external support. It could be equipment. It could be a whole range of things. It's everything that enables you to get it done. So a key part of that for me is ownership, sponsorship, and change leadership by the business. As a change manager, my role is to provide a support, bring in the specialist knowledge and doing some managing. But if I don't have ownership of the change by the business going nowhere, it'll just stall. So around that, I strongly recommend change governance, a bit like project governance. So there needs to be an overall steering group. Sitting on the steering group are the three or four senior executives who are most impacted by the change because they need to stand up and say, I'm behind it. And I want you to provide support for this. If the business knows this has the strong support of one or more senior leaders, when resourcing and what I prefer to call participation is required, people will turn up. Not alone will they turn up, they'll be there because they want to be there. There's no point in having people turning up as prisoners or hostages. What you want people is active participation. So you need to set the scene properly for them. And that's where the stakeholder management is. The other kind of things to keep in mind would be on the change management side is when you start and the impact impact it's going to have on the business. So you need to be able to explain to people, I think roughly this is what's going to happen. And you do that through dialogue, but you need to bring people through a story. Um, and it's really, really important that people get some kind of an idea, is it small, medium or large? And the best time to start to change 
is as soon as possible. Because the more time you put in in the planning and preparing, I always think it's a bit like, you know, preparing somebody for a journey. You don't turn up at the airport and decide, I better pack my bag now and I better, you, you do it in advance. You plan out the trip, you get your stuff all lined up. Change is a bit like that. The more planning and prep you do, the less pain that you take later on down. That's really, really important. And you need to keep in mind that change management and project management, they work on different timelines. Change management is what I consider a continuum. You know, you, you, it comes in waves. A project has a start, a middle, and an end. And normally when the project is finishing, the change management is only really getting harder. So, but people forget this. So understanding that's also important. The other thing to keep in mind is you're not the only change project in town. Chances are there's three or four more other ones, large, medium, and small. And I've been in that place. I've been the big project in the portfolio, and I've also been the small project in the portfolio. And you need to understand the positioning around that, and you need to adjust everything around that. That's a really important thing to keep in mind. So where are you in the big picture, and how important is it? The small project can actually have stronger senior leadership support and may get the resourcing ahead of bigger projects. And the final point to make in this intro is calling it a day. It's really important to remember when to stop, right? In unchanged projects, I find you could go on forever. You know, it's one of the, it is a continuum. But at a certain point in time, you need to get off the pitch and they need to bring the change. But the last thing you want is, oh, that's Dennis's change. It's not. It's your change. And you need to get, and that's like a gradual withdrawal but you need to have a plan in mind. It's a bit like the job and you have an exit strategy. You need to have an exit strategy from every change project because the business needs to own it and run with it from a certain point in time. Again, I would articulate that early up front with the sponsor and the owner of the change. So that's kind of a a general kind of picture. Oh, that's great, Dennis. Thank you. And what a great overview of the considerations. And the one that really underscores our topic today is understanding you're part of a bigger picture in the organization. And when you think you're the only game in town, you're going to have a hard time with resources, but also you're going to have a hard time being successful in change. And just focusing on the people part of the resources, people coming on to the project dedicated fully, And then you have people coming in and coming out. Any thoughts about the two different types of resources and how you manage and integrate both of them? Yeah, I would actually say there's three types rather than two. There's what I call the dedicated resource on change team. Generally, that tends to be a small, tight team. Then there's what I call the part-time participators. And generally, you'll get them maybe two or three days a week. They could be HR people, finance, communications. They can be varying different subspecialisms. That you, you, They come into a specific role within the change project or within the change element of a project but they have a specific package of work, but the package of work is part-time and that needs to be negotiated with their manager and them. So they're clear what they need to deliver for you and how much time that takes. That can be a little bit tricky, but in effect, they're semi-dedicated project resources. And then there's what I call the rest, everybody else, the pop-in, pop-out people, all the people who come to workshops, the people who support communications, people do surveys. There's a whole range of different people, plus everybody who's going through the change. So that's a much bigger group. Because if you have a load of people going through the change, you can't say, well, they're not participating in the project. They are. They are part of the project. It's really important to plan. If you don't plan ahead, you'll become a pain in the backside because you'll be coming up at the last, oh, we have a workshop tomorrow. You can say, I have a job to do. I have an end of month to do. The more planning you do ahead, the better. Because what they now know is that next week you're going to need them for a two-day workshop. You plan up the workshop two days ahead. You give them plenty notice. You agree with your sponsor and their managers. I will give you a minimum of, let's say, randomly two weeks notice of longer-term commitments. If it's a half a day, I'll give you a week's notice. If it's more than that, I'll give you two weeks notice. You should be able to plan it out that way. 
no people of certainty about the timing, these pop in and pop out people when you need them and why you need them. Now, it takes a fair bit of work to get it done, but it makes everybody's life so much easier. Keeping in mind that the work they're doing for you is really extras on top of the day job, but their day job won't reduce in size. Now, so many great points, Dennis, and there's shocks and people do not expect to be on a two-day course and they have other commitments, the other commitments will win. But also, I love your point about essentially don't waste people's time because I have seen where certain people are going through training, they don't use that part of the system or it doesn't impact their life, but someone's thrown them on the list and it doesn't take too long to break that trust of, hey, I'm here because I'm needed for my role, not because your plan states that. Have you ever seen that happen in your career? Oh, yeah. I've seen training rolled out way in advance of the configuration being built. I've seen training crammed in at the last minute, and I've seen training delivered really well. When it's properly planned and set out, it's so much better. And having a recognition of why you were doing the training, and that takes more planning and more prep by the project people, but it needs to link in again with the change people. Change ramps up at a slower rate than the project, but as the change becomes at its maximum, generally tends to be around go live for the project, or maybe a little bit before. And as the project begins to wind down after go live, change stays at a high level for a considerable period of time and then peters off later. As the project begins to wind down, they expect a change effort to wind down. That's the last time you wind it down. Absolutely. Because that's the time it's most difficult. And a lot of problems that were rush through begin to present themselves during that first weeks and months of the new system or the new process or whatever. But if you try to exit and there's chaos at play, it's not going to happen very easily. And you the most certainly won't be lining up to work with you the next time. Absolutely. Yeah. He's raised such a great point about after the change has been launched and providing support there. And, and in many ways, that support to embed it in the organization is some of the most important work you do. But in terms of competing for resources, leaders or sponsors of other changes are kicking off things, they're ramping up. It's definitely the more exciting piece of it. How do you negotiate for resources post-launch when, let's say, your competition, your other initiatives might be in a more attractive phase, which is the launch and the, the aspirational part of it? How do you make this relevant enough to get those resources? That's a good question. If you're negotiating for resources post-launch or late, is how I would put it, you need to contract for that early on. That's why I talked earlier about planning. Here is the project timeline. Here's the sequence the project goes through. And here's the sequence the change goes through. If you're working through your governance board and your working groups, they now understand what's happening. So well in advance of when this post-go-live is going to kick in, you've already got people's mindset in the right place. Like one of the things I used to do is we're now committing to do post-goalize support from this date to this date. How many people are we proposing to put on? So that kind of pushes it back onto the project delivery people. Now they're locking in. Well, we need so many people to do this. Well, how many people from the business? How many change people? As soon as you get an inkling that the, the post-goalize is being put on the table, that's when you start planning it out. If it doesn't come on the table early enough, put it on the table. Call it out. Okay, what's our post-go-live support going to look like? Testing is a really good time, actually. But during testing, I always do end-to-end process walkthroughs. I remember as one example, we were working on a trading system. When the business were pushing back strongly against the project, and I remember saying to project manager, just let's do this for them, right? They just want us to do it. Let's just go and do it, right? Just do this walkthrough. Fine. It was agreed. So we did the walkthrough and discovered the new processes that weren't able to get positions into place, which would have mean they would have been carrying open positions overnight, which is completely contrary to the trading policy. They found a way of creating all the positions, 
hedging those positions and then retrospectively putting them into the system once the system cut off. The only way we would have discovered that, the only way that we got to the solution of that was the business were engaged in a full walkthrough end to end. Rather than going in, putting the thing like in chaos and a lot of money exposed for considerable periods of time. And it could be weeks or months where it worked it out properly. Let's talk a little bit about culture because every organization has its own ways of working. How has culture shaped initiatives that you've had? Culture is one of these features of an organization that's very fluid and it is very context specific as well. Regardless of what you say, every organization has a culture. So people say, oh, we want to create a culture. Yeah, but you have one. So you want to change your culture. That's the first thing you need to understand, that you have one, whether you like it or not. And for example, if you're in an organization where it has quite conservative and low risk, there's no point in taking on a big high risk change. Everybody will be uncomfortable because intuitively it'll feel wrong. So you need to change the ground. Now, the only way around that usually is if there needs to be a lot of external pressure on to change, the call for urgency, the urgent need for change. But in a lot of other cases, what you're trying to do is, if possible, work with the, the positive aspects of the culture. Very rarely will you get a situation where you'll throw out the whole culture and bring in a totally new one. It's almost impossible. It just doesn't happen that way. If you're talking about large culture change, it's high risk because things can go badly wrong. But you, if there's a compelling case behind it, I've seen everything from safety change to brand new areas of business to a whole range of stuff that can happen. And they, they kind of give a massive impetus so people can buy into that. They, yeah, I, I absolutely want to be part of that. And they see the benefits. So there's a huge benefits change piece. So what you can do is play to the strength of the culture to get that across the line. So again, it's about telling the story and communicating. So there's lots of different issues like that you need to take into account bringing about a change. It's a bit like changing the direction of a river. The dramatic thing, the big change is put up the dam and you can do some change like that. It's quite difficult to completely change the direction of a river. You won't get it to flow up, for example. So what most people do is just tend to maneuver the ship in the right direction. In most change scenarios, it's a small to medium culture change, although people will feel it's large. And again, on the culture, I always remind people, look, we're changing this piece here, but we're keeping all of that. Say, oh, OK. Because when they hear culture change, they think everything's going out the door. But it's not. So it's important to say what isn't changing is really important. I would say almost more important than what's not, than what is changing. So if this we're preserving, this is what we're changing. Absolutely. And this isn't part of culture question, but I think it's a, a broader one too, when you're negotiating for resources and not all resources are the same. So some might have specific skills that you're looking for in the cultural context. They could be the cultural leaders. So the best captains to shift that boat as you're trying to navigate a slightly different stream or river. There's certain ones that you believe believe will help you to be more successful based on who they are or the skills they have. But typically, they're the ones that all other initiatives want as well, because they're just known like Sandeep is great in change. You know, everyone wants her. And how do you negotiate for those people that you believe will be the best resources for the change you're trying to do? Yeah, it kind of brings up two two answers, and which I, I deal with the first first, which is more like you want Phil or you want Tom or, or Sandip or whoever. I, I think in a way that goes back to the whole resourcing question with the sponsor or the sponsors. If everybody's looking for the best person, then only one or two will get them at the end of the day. That's the reality. So I think an important issue is twice that individual is important. 
Is it just you're comfortable with it or is it they have a specific unique skill set that are required? And that's why I think if you have an organization where there's a lot of change going on and you're dipping into the same resources all the time, that's why having a program of change view of it through somebody, um, and I fulfilled that role at one stage in my previous employer doing heat mapping and this kind of good stuff. And in the end of the day, I think you can negotiate as much as you like, but if you're not the number one priority, you're not the number one priority. Now, in a lot of cases, so I think taking a risk with somebody a bit less experienced or someone you're unfamiliar with can work out very, very well. They will probably appreciate the opportunity to take it on. The person you really wanted might provide them with some support just to get them up off the ground. And it might have worked out very, very well. So again, it can only be Phil and nobody else tends to be painting yourself into a corner. So what I would always look for is, is a good working alternative around those. And I think that's almost negotiating with yourself. The other thing to keep in mind, too, around this whole area of looking for resources and specific types of resources, I think that goes back to the point I made earlier, proper planning ahead, saying this is the phase, this is what I need, this is why it's important, and really reinforce the importance of that change leadership team. You need to bring them on the journey. The worst thing to do is you take a direction, you disappear into your corner, do your stuff, and then come back when the first problem comes up. You need to be kind of keep bringing them along on the journey. Because if you go off and do your work, everything works out fine for six months, you're moved on way ahead. And then you go back to them looking for something and they're way back six months ago. That's the last time they heard of it. Or they hear bits and pieces in between, but their journey hasn't moved on. Remember, everybody's going on a change journey. So as your mindset begins to change, your supporters, your sponsors need to come along with you and they need to be excited about the project or if there's problems, they need to know it. There's no point in hiding the problems. Problems just don't go away magically. Even if it's just to say to them, look, we have a problem here. I'm working on it. I keep you in the loop. And if you come back the next time, Phil, we sorted that. It's fine. Or no, look, it's beginning to get tricky. I need your help on this. So you're almost priming your sponsor to get involved at the right time. And they need to know you'll only pull them in when you really need to. What happens as well is if someone bumps into them and say, look, I want to take Phil away from Dennis. And they might say, oh, that sounds okay to me. If you haven't briefed them, but if you have briefed them, you know, I'm totally reliant on Phil. They now have the context. So yeah. I have many a time I would have rung up my manager or my sponsor, look, just to keep you in the loop. Um, this is coming up. We're going under severe pressure. I need to hold on to these guys for an extra two weeks or I need extra resource or whatever I need, or I need your support to do whatever. Now they know you're, you're going through difficulties. They're not going to agree to release people. But if they're blindsided by somebody, they may make a commitment and they may be reluctant then to roll back on that later. So again, it's about keeping your senior leaders engaged and in, not pester them, but keep them sufficiently informed. They know what's going on. Fantastic. No, you've raised so many great points. Earlier in our conversation, you talked about the phasing of different resources. So at the beginning or the middle or the end, there's going to be certain requirements and maybe a, a heavier lift for people in the business. How do you educate or how do you set that table so that the leaders know that? So when it is heavy for yeah. their operational teams to dedicate more time, they're willing to comply. That's a good point. I think it goes back to the point I made earlier, you know, seeking first to understand and then be understood is really important. And, and what I mean by that is, what's their business cycle like? What, for example, if I'm coming in at year end, particularly a goal I have around year end, that's going to adversely impact the finance people. So what's the solution? Now, I know from experience, there's lots of ways you could do that. But if it's the first time through, the finance people will buck. They will go ballistic because it might mean loads of extra work. It might mean a year end being completed in one old financial system and another in a new system. So you need to get in and understand it. I remember as well on trading systems, end of month reporting, 
was regulatory reporting really important? So there's certain times, look, I know you want to do this that week, but we're just up the walls and I can't give you anybody. So again, having that dialogue. So then negotiate, say, could I move it a week later and a week early? And that's where you have your overall steering committees fine, but then you need some working groups then within the main areas of the business that you're impacting. You need groups in each area. So for example, for front office, it's, if it's trading they're doing, it, that's kind of day-to-day stuff. They do a lot of stuff every day, every week. But the risk people will do a lot of stuff within day, but they'll also do end of month stuff, as will the financial people. The back office will be doing a lot of reporting towards month end that they feed into the risk teams. So understanding the dynamics that you're working with is really important. For example, I've done a lot of work on safety change. Understanding what is it around that you're doing? What's the context? What do people want? I developed a, a safety change impact assessment tool a few years ago. But the only way I could do that was by really understanding how they worked, what were their concerns, what needs to be demonstrated, what level of evidence is needed. So until you understand that, you're not going to come up with the right answer. I was talking to the safety guy, he said, look, we have real concerns around this big restructuring and the safety impacts. OK, let's develop a tool for it. I brought the guy through it. He gave me the guiding principles. I came back with the tool and showed it to him. But again, he said, yeah, I see it. I'm with you on it. That's the kind of support, but that only comes by putting the work in. If you don't put the work in and build a trust, it won't happen. It doesn't happen instantly. You know what they say in the change office, Phil? The only thing that's instant is the coffee. Everything else takes time. (laughs) Well said. Thank you, Dennis. And there's a big theme again, doing the homework. And I wonder that a question about you've done all your homework, everything's been great, but things change. Maybe it is a year plus initiative that's going on. Conditions are different. You need more resources than what you would have anticipated. How do you present the new case for resources that is different from the original one that got your existing team? That's a great point. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier. I mean, you need to bring your sponsor on the journey. If you go away and you do your change plan and off you go, and you, you appear back six months' time and say, oh, Phil, I need an extra 20 resources. What? What do you need 20 resources for? They're six months ago. Last serious conversation was six months ago. Everything's consent. We're fine, we're fine. Everything goes along. If you don't bring your sponsor on the journey, then you're going to get caught out. If they're with you on the journey, this is what I call check-in pulses. In the in engineering world, they have a thing called a heartbeat. And if you have a rem- piece of remote equipment, Every so often you call out the equipment, are you there? And the equipment comes back and says, yes, I am. And that's it. And what happens then, a simple example would be, it might be measuring the pressure on a piece of equipment out in the field. And as long as the pressure stays within certain limits, it doesn't talk to you, except for the heartbeat. But now you know it's definitely alive. But then if it goes outside, it tells you, oh, the pressure has now gone up to whatever. So it, it'll communicate by exception. That's very common. So what you don't want to do is end up in a scenario where you have no heartbeat and the first thing you find out is when you need the pressure sensor to talk to you, it's broken, you know, and that can happen in the same change project where you've been working away and the sponsor is off doing something else. And out of the blue, you're coming back looking for loads of resources and they've already given them all away and you can't do anything. And they're not in the journey. So you spend a huge amount of time getting them back on the pitch. They're going to be really frustrated with you because they're under pressure for something else. You're taking up a lot of their time to get them back to where we were. You're reversing. They thought that everything was swimmingly. They've been telling everybody up top, oh, everyone's fine. They're doing a great job in the project. Suddenly, car crash. So bringing them on the journey. And it only takes maybe, you might meet them maybe an hour or so 
per week. Um, you have a formal review once a week, or maybe it's a fortnight or once a month, whatever is appropriate, but you definitely have a formal sit-down review. Here's the plan, here's what we are, here's what's coming up. And if you're doing a proper heartbeat, you might be saying, by the way, Nova, look, if this comes in, we think this is what's going to happen. It'll have an impact, so we're going to have to change. And they might turn around and say, well, actually, I know that'll come in, but I don't want us to implement that change. That'll be the next release. So come out with this release and we will then bring in that response to that change in the next release six months later or whatever. So you might be piling stuff into the change that doesn't, don't need to be because, oh, the junior people might say, oh, we need to change. But the boss says, no, I'm not going to do that. Or they might say, yes, and by the way, here's your extra resources, or you can extend the time or whatever. Again, if they know that, that you're going to need extra resources if a certain outcome happens, they're not going to start making commitments to other people. Right. So again, Excellent. if I don't know about it, I can't help you. And if you come on with the last minute, then I have to give you a last minute response. So well said. We've talked a lot about the sponsors and, and keeping them on the journey and so that they can support you as needed. I'm wondering, have you ever seen a scenario where there is an appropriate resource that you're looking for? The sponsor says that's great, but that resource is in high demand and she or he might not want to come on to the project for whatever reason. How do you build the case for them to come on so that they see the value of the organization, but also for themselves to take a year and join this journey? That's an interesting question. Maybe I'll answer it in a slightly different way, if you wouldn't mind. There's multiple projects going on. What you don't want to find out is your project is the one that nobody wants to come on to because everybody on the project thinks this is a, this is a crash. This is a disaster. You know, this manager is awful. And as you go through the project, your best advocate isn't yourself, by the way. Your best advocates are your team and your sponsors and the business you're working with. They'll either be a strong advocate for you or not. And if they're not, then you're going to have problems. So again, it kind of goes back to my previous point is you need to be building, I think what Stephen Covey calls emotional bank accounts. You need to be building credits in the bank with your stakeholders and with other people. If you really want somebody on the project and are a bit hesitant to come on the project, most certainly I would go and talk to them and say, look, I'd really like to come on the project. And they might say, look, here's my concerns and whatever. And you can address those concerns. But if they fundamentally don't want to do it, do you really want a hostage on the project? It goes back to what I said earlier. There's probably somebody else who may be not as good on paper, in theory, but because they, the other person will be willing to come on the project and willing to work with some support, they may actually be better. Because there's nothing worse than having a hostage on the project. I would definitely try to get them on. I wouldn't force them on. But I'd be much more concerned if my project was heard as that's definitely not one you want to go on. Oh, great answer. No, so true. And there's so many examples I can think of when that's been the case and, and they're not the great resource you want and mm. it's not working for anyone and it does impact the team too. Mm. And this has been Absolutely. fascinating. And I'm just wondering in the spirit of change on the run, if you only had time to do one action to help compete or negotiate or get the right resources, one that would give you 80% of the results in 20% mm. of the time, what would that be? Ultimately for me, it's ownership who owns the project or the change, really, let's call it. If the right people own the change, everything else will tend to fall into place. They have skin in the game. They will push it because their brand is on it. They won't want their project to fail. So because it's their business and they'll receive it, they'll have a big say in what happens. So if you have that, everything will fall into place. It's definitely worth working on. And in fact, I'd say building that strong credibility with your broader uh, stakeholder base, and that includes your team, the, the business itself, the senior leaders, 
you know, having that good working relationship and that requires you to do everything else like the planning, the, the ongoing briefings, that all goes back to I'm here to serve, I'm here to support them. It's their project ultimately and they need to know if it succeeds or fail, it's primarily down to them. And that takes a while because a lot of change people like to come in, well, I'm the change guru here and I do all the change piece for you. That's a disaster because they quite happily shovel it over to you and walk off. Say, well, Dennis is doing it. And, and you're kind of going, well, <laughs> so that ownership piece for me is the single most important piece. And it takes work. It takes commitment. And it, for me, it has worked really well in the past. Now, that's great. And, and your point about earning trust, I think, is, is such an important piece of that with the relationships, because if that trust exists, then you're just trying to work through and help the business be successful and to do that change. And a lot of the challenges go away if everyone trusts each other and have those right relationships. Yeah, and I think it's, and it, and if there's a trust issue with an individual, you need to work on that. You need to work on what's the issue. Sometimes you may not be the best person to resolve that issue. You may require support from somebody else or you may need an ally or someone else to help you through that. I think in the end of the day, you'll either earn it or you won't earn it. Someone described to me, it's like a plant. You need to continue to feed it and care for it because you can kill it. Thank you so much. And thanks so much for taking time to be on our show today. And I'm wondering as we close off, is there any insight or consideration or tip or just something to underscore from our conversation that you think would help the listeners as they manage their resources for their change initiatives? I think we've covered a lot today on this session. I think a lot of it goes down to say ownership, trust, planning. The big thing is believe in yourself, but also be clear on your value. What are you there for? If you think you're the change manager, you're running the show, you're probably not in the right place. And seeing yourself almost in the servant leader role, I think that's really important. You're there to enable the, the senior leaders to deliver the change and be a trusted advisor. And you get into that space. So, yeah, if you can get into that space, it will work for you. Oh, Dennis, thank you so much. This has been such a great conversation. How can people get in contact with you? Probably the best way to pick me up is probably through LinkedIn. Just do a connect request and I, I connect with you. And we can message there and we can do further connection afterwards if they wish. I'd be more than happy to do that. You're definitely linked to me, so you can pick that up very easily. And I just wish everybody well. Change management and the whole change leader is challenging. It's been a really interesting part of my career. I enjoyed it very much. Just go and go and do it. Oh, great. Thank you, Dennis. Every one of our conversations is tremendous. Thank you. I really appreciate, again, you taking the time to be on the show. More than happy. Thank you very much, Phil. Have a good day. Thank you. Same to you. And to everyone, I hope that you've picked up a tip or two that will help you as you compete or manage your resources during change. And until the next time, I wish you all the best as you continue to lead change. <laughs>